I invite you to take your Bibles, uh, or you can look in the bulletin, and our passage is printed for you there. We're going to be looking at Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Continuing on in our series of A Summer in the Psalms, looking at various psalms and what God would have us to know and to understand about Himself, about our world, about us, about the gospel, uh, through these wonderful Old Testament psalms. Today we're coming to Psalm 22. And I'm going to read the entire psalm from uh, verse 1 down through verse 31. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, far far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are the one who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, and trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and, uh, ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him 
It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for so preserving it over these many years that as we read it, we can know that we are reading the very word of God. But we need your help. So we pray for the Holy Spirit. Send the Holy Spirit into our midst. Help us to understand your word. Open our eyes and our hearts. Help us, Father, to see the incredible hope that is here in this portion of your word. May we celebrate the gospel of your grace and mercy to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen. If someone asked you, uh, as a Christian person, uh, what are the most important words that Jesus ever, ever said during his life and ministry on this earth? What are the most most important words that we have in the Bible that Jesus said while he walked on the earth? What would you say? It's an interesting exercise, isn't it? Uh, Perhaps maybe this afternoon you could go through the Gospels and start recording different things that you think might be the most important words that Jesus said. Perhaps the ones that come to your mind are the ones that we read from our assurance of grace earlier. It is finished. Those are some important words from Jesus. Or maybe it's when Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or how about you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Also, a good case could be made for that being the most important thing that Jesus said. How about come to me? All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, I'm not sure we can actually come up with the most important thing that Jesus ever said. But let me add just one more to that list. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These words that Jesus uttered were at one of the most important moments in his life, in all of history. While hanging on the cross, Jesus quoted from Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And those words give us an incredible glimpse into exactly what was happening to Jesus on the cross. It reveals in a small way, in our small minds trying to grasp the reality of what Jesus went through and what he actually achieved for us in his death on the cross. Psalm 22 is so very important for us to reflect on and to meditate upon today. Not simply because it's quoted in the New Testament, not even simply because it's quoted by Jesus himself, but also because this psalm is a psalm that is full of hope. For God's people. There is hope in this psalm for faithless sinners. For Christians who are discouraged about their sin. Who feel faithless. Who need something 
to help them to fight and to lean against their besetting sins. There is hope in this psalm for those who are suffering, who those who, who feel like God is not near them, who wonder, has God abandoned me? Who feel that their enemies are closing in around them. There is hope here in this psalm for, for those who look out in this world and feel like everything is always going wrong. That it's getting worse and worse. How can we say that God is winning? Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to hear Psalm 22 today because we need to understand the hope especially in these days in which we find ourselves. So the first thing I want you to see today is actually that there's mystery here in the psalm. There is mystery. Now, we know, if you look at the beginning of the psalm, we know from the, the, the title itself that this psalm was written by David. It says so itself, the psalm of David. And we also know that it's largely autobiographical. If you look at particularly the first half of the psalm, you see lots of I's and me's and my's. This is David writing about himself. And we know almost, uh, we know more about David than we know about almost any other person in the scriptures. And so that's where the mystery comes. The mystery comes because as we look at what David is saying in these verses, particularly the first 21 verses, we have to ask ourselves, when did all of this happen to David? Uh, just look at what he says. Look at verses 6 and 7. He is scorned by mankind. He is despised by the people. He is mocked by everyone. He's being ridiculed. Look again at verses 12 and 13 and verse 16. He describes enemies who are fiercely against him. He, he sees them as animals who are encircling him. Bulls and lions and dogs. Look at verse 14. His bones are out of joint. And his heart is so devastated that he says it's like melting wax. Look at verse 15 and verse 17. He says that he's dying of thirst and hunger. So thin that you can see and count his bones. Look at verse 16. It says that those, are judging, those who are judging him pierce his hands and his feet. And then in verse 18. He's stripped and his clothes are divided up. In ancient culture that would almost only happened when someone was about ready to die or had died. So the question is, when did all of this happen to David? Certainly David had difficult times. We see that throughout the Old Testament as we read the story of his life. But when was it this bad? Do you see the mystery here is when we look in history, when we look in the scriptures, when we read about David's life, we do not see... The extent that we hear here in Psalm 22 about David's life. Several commentators have said that what we read in Psalm 22 is not a scene of illness or an attack by enemies or persecution in and of itself. What we are reading here is really a scene of a public execution. So what's going on? How do we answer this mystery? Well, it's only mysterious until we come to the New Testament. 
In Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching a sermon during the time of Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 2, verses 29 and following, he says this in his sermon. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his own descendants on on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. David was a prophet. And Peter's saying, we can look around and we can even see the tomb of David. He died, he was buried, but he was a prophet. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, God enabled David to know what was going to happen about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had promised David that one of the descendants of David would come and rule and be a greater and more ultimate king. And David foresaw that one and spoke about him. He spoke about his life and his death and his resurrection. And so here is where the mystery of Psalm 22 is solved and how Psalm 22 makes sense when we realize that David was actually writing about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 22 is more than just being about Jesus, though. It is actually Jesus speaking about himself. Now, how do we get there from the passage? Well, it's actually not in this passage, but in Matthew chapter 27. As you know, as we've talked about already, Jesus was hanging on the cross. He was about to die. And he cries out and quotes from the very first verse of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, we don't have this, uh, this, this element as much now in our society, but in ancient culture, uh, you, many times somebody would quote the first line of a story or of a play or of a, of, a, of a poem in order to point to and indicate the entirety of that play or story or poem. And so what Jesus is doing here when he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he is actually saying is all of Psalm 22 is about me. It's about my life. It's about my experience. It's about my suffering. It's about my abandonment by God. And we also have the writer of the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter two, saying, although it's not been quoted in the Gospels, the author of the Hebrews says that Jesus actually said verse 22 during his life and ministry saying that he's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you see how this completely transformed how we are to read Psalm 22 when we realize that it's about Jesus, that it is Jesus speaking about himself. He is the one who came into this world, who endured incredible physical and spiritual suffering. He was mocked, he was teased, he was bullied, he was scorned, he was spit on, he was yelled at and he was ridiculed. His enemies were constantly around him, at times surrounding him like wild beasts, ready to devour him. His bones were stretched and even pulled out of joint. His heart was devastated as he watched people that were made in his image lie and steal and betray and seek to kill kill him. Many times lived a life of hunger and thirst, even on the cross. He had his wrists and his ankles pierced with nails as he was attached to the cross and he had his side pierced with a sword. He was mocked, he was laughed at, he was made fun of. And at the end of his life, he was stripped of his clothes 
And they were divided up among the among the soldiers. The mystery of Psalm 22 is solved as we realize that, yes, it is written by David and it has certain aspects that apply to David's life. But the greater and more ultimate fulfillment through the work of the Holy Spirit, David is writing about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we see that Psalm 22 is about Jesus, that it's Jesus speaking about his own life, this psalm fills us with hope. There is hope here for those who are sinners. There is hope here for those who who mourn and grieve over their faithlessness. For those who are struggling with their sin. Because this psalm points us to the faithfulness of Jesus. Even in the midst of incredible suffering, Jesus endured not only intense physical pain and suffering, but also an infinite spiritual suffering as he was forsaken by his father. And yet, in the midst of that most incredible, intense suffering, the most intense suffering imaginable, Jesus was faithful. Do you see it? He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I know that often our hearts and our minds go to this idea of feeling like God is far from me. But don't miss what Jesus says. My God. My God. He cries out. These are the words of the covenant. These are the words of a relationship. This is the promise that God had given his people in the Old Testament. I will be your God and you will be my people. And so in the midst of the most unimaginable suffering physically and spiritually, Jesus is declaring his allegiance to his father. He is declaring his covenant, his commitment, his love. It is my God that he cries out to. So here's the good news of the gospel, brothers and sisters in Christ. If you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, then we get credit for Jesus' faithfulness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because Jesus was perfectly faithful, and because I am united to him by faith, I am declared righteous. Can you see why this should bring us hope? It answers the question that we often have. Can God forgive me even one more time? The gospel says Jesus has been faithful in my place. My standing with God is settled and secure because of the work that Jesus did for me. There is nothing that I can do to improve upon it. There's nothing that I can do to earn or to keep God's forgiving love. It is mine totally and freely through the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's admit that's pretty hard for us to consistently believe. I think I've shared this story with you a while ago. It's the story that's told by A.W. Pink. A.W. Pink was a late 19th, early 20th century pastor and Bible teacher. And he tells this true story about uh, two men that uh, perhaps were involved in his ministry in his parish area. Uh, the first is a Christian farmer. And this Christian farmer had a, had a burden for his neighbor who was not a believer in Jesus, a carpenter. 
And as the story goes, this true story goes, the, the Christian farmer again and again and again shares the gospel with his non-Christian carpenter neighbor. And the carpenter, hearing the free offer of the gospel, hearing the, the wonder of God's grace and the call to accept it with open hands, found it incredibly hard to believe it. Surely, he would say, I have to do something. I have to forsake my sin or I have, I have to live a better life. Then God would accept me. I have to offer. I have to do. I have to do something, he would say. The Christian farmer would try to tell him the gospel over and over again, but the carpenter just couldn't get it. And so the Christian farmer decided to come up with a story or some kind of an illustration to help his neighbor understand the gospel in a deeper way. So he, he asked his carpenter neighbor if he would make him a wooden gate for his fence. And the, the neighbor was glad to. He loved to use his craft of carpentry to do wonderful things. And so he created a beautiful gate. Uh, it was one of his prizes of, 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 his, of his work that he had done. And he called the Christian farmer and said, it's finished to come over and get it. And so the Christian farmer went and got the gate. He thanked him for it. He brought it home and he hung it there on his fence. And when he did, he then contacted his neighbor and said, would you please come over and make sure that I've hung it correctly? So the carpenter neighbor went next door and as he got there to, to, uh, to observe and to inspect the, the gate, he looked and he saw the farmer had one of his big axes in his hands. And he said, well, what are you going to do with that? And he said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to improve the work that you did on this gate. And the carpenter said, what do you mean? It's hanging perfectly. It looks wonderful. It's, it's perfect. There's no need for improvement. And at that, the Christian farmer took the axe and began to hit the gate, turning it into just splinters. And his neighbor said, what are you doing? You, you've ruined. You've ruined my work. And his neighbor says, ah, yes, I have. And that's exactly what you're doing in thinking that you need to add anything to the work of Jesus in order for you to be found acceptable to God. Pink says that God used that lesson to convert the carpenter to faith in Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the forgiveness of your sins, your standing with God, your acceptance with your Father is secure because it is anchored in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ in His life, His death, His resurrection, and His ascension. There is nothing to add. And so be filled with hope, true hope, genuine hope. You should be filled with hope not just because of being a faithless sinner, but there is also the reminder that there's incredible power here in the gospel for those who struggle with their sin. We need hope because we need to know that there is power to fight and to lean against our sin in the gospel. We often feel like I can't, 
lean against it. I can't fight against it. I give in again and again and again. Sometimes we look at the temptation, we know it's a temptation, and we know we're going to give in to it, even when it's staring us right in the face. We have the opportunity, God even brings it to our mind in that moment, to there in that moment to turn away and to go back to the Lord. And yet we pick the sin over and over and over again. But do you understand that the gospel is power for us? God's grace, God's gospel, it fills us with a power to fight against sin, to say no, even in the very moment of our temptation. Now, lest you think that I'm just making that up, listen to what Paul says in Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. What is it that gives us the strength and the power to fight and to lean against our sin and to live lives of uprightness and being self-controlled? It is the grace of God. The more that we would meditate on the extent of God's grace and and, and the more that we would grasp the extent of God's love for us, then our hearts would melt like wax. We, as God's people, have lost the art of true biblical meditation. Uh, it, it, it's a it's a skill, it's a gift, it's an ability, it's something that we are to, to nurture that, that helps us to get the Word of God deeply into our hearts and our minds so that in those moments when we are most greatly tempted, we have the power of God through the Holy Spirit working the gospel truth into our minds and hearts so that we lean and fight against our sin. The more that we would meditate on the gospel, the more that we would understand the gospel of grace, the more our lives will be characterized by God's word. The more power that we will have to fight and to lean against even our besetting sins. There's hope in this psalm for those who are sinners, those who feel powerless against their sin. There's also hope in this psalm for those who are suffering. If you look at the first half of this psalm, verses 1 through 21, David really gives us, in his words, a model for dealing with fears and doubts, suffering, even while we're going in the midst of those things. Do you, do you appreciate how honest David is here in these words? He's honest. He, he cries out about his fears. He, he cries out about how he's feeling. He even admits that he feels far from God, that God has abandoned him, that God has forsaken him. And yet, what I want you to see is not only is David honest about his thoughts, not only is he transparent about his thoughts, but he doesn't stay there indefinitely. You can see that even if you just look at the first part of the psalm, verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. That is genuine. That is real. He is crying out to God and being honest. But do you notice he doesn't stay there indefinitely? What does he say in verse 3? Yet. I feel alone. I feel abandoned by you, God. And yet, he says, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. He's real. He's honest. 
He voices his suffering, his pain, his doubts. But then he reminds himself of what is true. God has been good and faithful and trustworthy to the forefathers. And he will be to us as well. You can see it again in verses 6 and 7. He goes on and he's wrestling with himself. But I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. He's honest. He's honest about his feelings, but he doesn't stay there. Verse 9. Yet... You are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Yes, I feel this fear. I feel far from you, God. I'm doubting, I'm wondering if you can be real, if you can be trusted. And yet, I remember, I have been yours from the womb from my mother's breasts, and you have shown yourself faithful over and over and over again. I will yet trust you. You can see it one last time in verse 21. It's a little bit hard to see in the English translation. And some of your versions may actually have a different word here, but you can see at the end of verse 21 as he comes to the climax, going back and forth, arguing with himself, knowing how he feels and yet knowing what is true. He comes to the end of verse 21 and he says, you have rescued me. You have rescued our forefathers. You have rescued me. Some of your translations may have, you have answered me or you have heard me. The important thing here is to know that the verb that is being used is in the perfect tense. It's completed. It's past. We may feel that God is not near us in our suffering. We may feel that God has forsaken us. But the truth is that God is always present. And He hears us. And He answers us. And He rescues us. I want you to notice as David's uh, wrestling with himself, arguing with himself, so to speak, as he comes to this wonderful crescendo, you have rescued me. You are trustworthy. I will yet once again put my trust in you. He moves on in verses 22 and following to do what? To give thanksgiving and praise and worship to God. What does he say? Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. You offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise and the great congregation. My vows I will perform before you, before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever ever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. David's heart is finally turned to thanksgiving and praise to God. Now, how can we do that? How can we have true hope that turns us to God in the midst of even our suffering? It's because we recognize that no matter what I experience, what I go through, how far away God feels from me in the moment, I know the truth 
that Jesus endured so much more suffering and pain and persecution than I will ever face. That Jesus loves me more than I can ever fully understand. And he will give me the strength that I need to persevere and endure. That Jesus experienced being forsaken by God. And as a result, if I am in Christ, I never will. So in those moments when we feel overwhelmed, as we feel be overwhelmed with the suffering, the thoughts that God hates me, that God has forsaken me, that God can't possibly forgive me one more time, we have to argue with ourselves just like David's doing. We have to tell ourselves what is true, even if we don't feel it in the moment. I am not alone. The Lord is always with me. Even if I have no one else, even if I have nothing else, He is with me always and He's been, with, he's been through so much more than I will ever be called to experience. And so He understands and He loves me and He's with me. We have to remind ourselves, this isn't forever. We have a promise in the Word of God that our suffering has an end. It may last for a time. It may last for a season. It may even last most of our life. But then it's over for eternity. What we go through now pales in comparison to what is coming for us. We have to argue with ourselves and tell ourselves my suffering has a purpose. Even if we don't understand how God is at work and everything that we're enduring, we know that Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. God is at work, even in our suffering, to form us and to prepare us for an eternal weight of glory that is beyond comparison to the short-term suffering that we would have in this life. So for the Christian, expressing fear and weariness and even doubts is legitimate and appropriate. But we can't stay there indefinitely. Like David, we are to voice our fears and to voice our feelings, but then say, yet. God has been faithful to his people throughout history and he will be faithful to me. Jesus has endured ultimate suffering and abandonment, so I don't have to face it. And even when I feel alone, wonder where, wondering where God is and what He's doing, I will trust that the Lord is with me. There's real and true hope for us when we're suffering, when we're in the midst of it, when it's intense, whether that's sickness, whether that is enduring a difficult marriage, whether that is longings that are going unfulfilled, or even persecution for having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is real hope here for God's people. Lastly, not only is there hope for faithless sinners and hope for those who are suffering, there's also hope for the mission of the gospel. One commentator said that the last half of this psalm is a throbbing, soaring anticipation of the expanding proclamation of the gospel and the growing of a triumphant Christian church. You can see it if you just see the progression that's happening in these verses. Look at verses 22 through 24. The gospel is being proclaimed to who? The brothers in the congregation, to the Jews. 
to God's people in the Old Testament, to the Jewish people. Verses 27 and 28, the gospel is proclaimed not only to the brothers in the congregation, but to the very ends of the nations, the ends of the earth, the families of the nations, to the Gentiles. And then at the end of the psalm, we have these wonderful words in verses 30 and 31 of the gospel being proclaimed not only to the brothers in the congregation, the Jews, and the nations, the Gentiles, but also to who? To posterity. To coming generations to people that are yet unborn. It it reminds us of the promise that we get in Acts chapter 1. That the gospel would go to Jerusalem, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, as you read these final verses in Psalm 22, it ought to do two things to you. And we'll finish with this. The first thing is it should move you to incredible thanksgiving. Do you understand... We are the fulfillment of verses 30 and 31. Those at home in their their homes worshiping, those here in this room, God's people, we are the fulfillment. We are the posterity. We are the children yet unborn. And God has been faithful to the gospel going even to us. What kind of thanksgiving we should offer as God's people as we see in part the fulfillment of this Old Testament promise. I was reminded as I was thinking about this this week of Isaac Watts' great hymn, How Sweet and Awesome is the Place. The first three verses go like this. How sweet and awesome is the place with Christ within the doors while everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Does that echo the heart, your heart's desire? Do you have a genuine thanksgiving to the Lord? As you see verses 30 and 31 fulfilled in your life, God's goodness, God's faithfulness, God's trustworthiness. It should do a second thing in us. It should produce a second thing in us. And that is a genuine interest in seeing the mission of the gospel go forward. To see God's grace being told to the lost. Watts hymns hymns finishes uh, the last two verses this way. Pity the nations, O our God. Constrain the earth to come. Send your victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. We long to see your churches full, that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing your redeeming grace. The gospel of God's mercy and grace is not just for you. It's not just for your family. It is for the world. It is for the nations. It is for the generations to come. For those who are yet unborn. And do you understand that the kindness of God to allow us and to give us the privilege and to give us the ability to partake in this wonderful mission of the gospel that he's doing. Not only are you the fulfillment of verses 30 and 31 in part. You are also the means of God continuing to accomplish that purpose. So we need to be praying 
We need to be praying for the gospel to go forward. We need to be praying for those that we know who are serving in other places around this country and other places around the world. We need to be giving financially to support those that are serving in places that are perhaps very difficult. And we even need to think about going. We have opportunities even within our own church at Crow Creek in South Dakota, but even here in Rochester by serving folks at the Zumbro Ridge Estates. And we don't know what all that's going to look like with dealing with COVID, but you can still be praying. You can still be getting ready to go and to serve when the time is right and able for that. You can be giving as the Lord enables you to be able to see his mission accomplished in those places and other places. There's hope here. Hope for us as we remember the mission of the gospel. Psalm 22 is a psalm of David, but it's also the psalm of Jesus. And in it, there is incredible hope for sinners who are struggling with the idea that God could not forgive me one more time. Struggling with our own faithlessness, recognizing that Jesus was faithful in my place. There's hope for those who are suffering. Jesus has suffered more than we will ever be called to suffer. And because he was forsaken by God, we never will be. Even in the midst of our suffering, when God seems so far away, we know that our suffering is temporary, that it's purposeful, and that he is with us. And there's hope here for the mission of the gospel, for God's church and his kingdom to expand in our city, in our homes, in our country, around the world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for how your word is unified from beginning to end. How we see it given to David in the Old Testament and how we see it fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. How we see your faithfulness, your trustworthiness, even in our own lives. Father, fill us with hope, not a bare hope that this world would know, but a hope that is genuine, that is true, that is anchored in your word, in your truth, in your goodness, in your faithfulness. And so send us out this week to live for you, for your glory, and for the building up of your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.